Thank you so much for inviting me back and welcoming me. It is a joy that I get to experience you worshiping live. And I look forward to spending the month of March with you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 47, clap your hands all you nations, shout for joy with cry, shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord most high, the great king over all the earth. Clap your hands all you nations. We don't very often clap our hands in worship, do we? Sometimes we do. But uh, not always. And Psalm 150, one of my all-time favorites. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp, the lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the flute, with the clash of cymbals, with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Are you familiar with the Muppets? The drummer for the Muppets? Animal. He quietly plays in the background and taps out the rhythm that he's supposed to. And after about six bars of that, he just throws it up and says, ah, and goes off on a, an amazing drum solo. And I think every drummer secretly wants to do that. I was watching yours this morning, and he was very gentle. But you could see every now and then there was this eagerness to get out. We had dancing and tambourines this morning. It was amazing how we worshiped together. But recently, someone said to me again that they could worship at home, they could worship in their living room, they could worship anywhere. They didn't need to come to church to be a Christian. And I thought back of all the times in ministry that I had heard something like that. I can worship at the lake. I can worship at the golf course. I can worship while I'm on an outing with my family. And lately, as I get to be more crotchety and bold, I kept wanting to say, and even did say on many occasions, but do you worship there? And then I follow that first question up with another one that says, how do you worship? With the first question, I'm acknowledging that, yes, it is possible to worship anywhere. But there's a world of difference between a place being suitable or acceptable for worship and worship actually taking place. Different groups have discovered that the Rogers Center, I only know it as the Sky Dome, but if I slip off, you'll know. It's a great place to worship, they've discovered. And, and the Anglicans and the Roman Catholics have had citywide, regional-wide worship services and masses there. And I know I've been with the evangelical community there a few times for citywide prayer rallies. Yet it's possible to worship practically anywhere. 
but do we? When we go to the Sky Dome on a normal summer Sunday, it's the Blue Jays or the Argos or somebody else that we are more likely to see than God. And whenever we mention God on the fairways, it's more likely to curse something rather than to praise and worship him. When we go for a drive in the country or sit at the cottage or a campground, do we worship the living God according to his word? Not usually. Worship is a topic that's well discussed in the scriptures. I've given you a, a handout, and in that handout there are oodles and oodles of personal devotional studies and Bible, corporate Bible studies and things for you to read and discover for yourself about worship. But for now, lay it aside or turn it over and make some notes on it. There are encouragements to worship and a list of how-tos and what's acceptable and what is preferred and many other topics. When I retired, I took my Thompson Chain Reference Bible to Africa and left it there. But there were 23 different topics related to worship, attendance in worship, calls to worship, children present in worship, choirs in worship, congregational assemblies for worship, family worship, worship loved by God and by people, praise in worship, musical instruments in worship, places of worship, attitudes of worship, songs in worship, unity in worship, so many different subjects relating to worship, and all so interesting, so educational, and so eye-opening. In the Old Testament, there are at least seven scripture references alone that deal with the gathering of God's people for worship. And from these, we understand that worship is a corporate, a community event. There are five scriptures that speak about children being present at and not excluded from worship so that they too might sing praises to God, express their joy, and learn how to worship. I used to tell the congregation that I first served that I want the kids in the service. I don't care whether they're on the pew, in your arms, or under the pews. I want them in service. And if they're under the pews, give them a scraper and tell them to get the gum off. There are eight references and several cross-references that instruct us to that worship is not an option. It's an imperative. We are commanded of God to worship. We are to worship. There's about 20 references made in scriptures about worshiping God in his house, a tabernacle, a temple, a synagogue, a place set aside for worshiping God. When Paul encounters Lydia in the city where she's meeting, there's not enough Jewish faithful people there to have a synagogue. So they meet in a grove of trees on the outskirts of town. They still worshipped, and they still set aside some special place for worship. But do you worship there? That was my first question, and it always begs the second question. How do you worship there? When you're off doing whatever it is you're doing, how do you worship? Do you pause to sing a hymn, a, a psalm, a spiritual song? Do you publicly read the scriptures, read them aloud? Do you teach and encourage and offer explanations from those scriptures? 
Do you share praises and blessings and acknowledge that God is a great God and worthy of praise? Do you pray and ask God for mercy and for healing for both body and soul? Is joy on your heart and is worship and praise on your lips? We've noticed how worship has changed recently over the years. When you're as old as I am, you, you've seen it all, you think. But it's also stayed the same in as much as it has changed. We have a framework for worship, and we insert or use different content or themes inside that framework. At times, every once in a generation or two, or when some new pastor or interim pastor comes along, we tweak it a little bit and change the framework slightly, but not usually too very much. In our worship services, traditionally, we begin with praise. A psalm, a hymn, a reading of praise, a prayer asking that we be made aware of the presence and the greatness of God. We may have blessings and prayers and thanksgivings, the presentation of our gifts and offerings, and those things that we have brought to God. And then we sing. We hear others sing. We, we, we revel in the praise and worship that's on our lips and in the hearts of children. I went to Africa a few years ago and was on a mission trip there. And I have a video that I'm going to bring and show you another time, but it's about a little girl, about as big as the ones that were here this morning. And there, her mom was, was, was singing in a choir. And of course, in Africa, you can't sing without moving your feet. And this little one was just... Bring it on. But you could see that she was learning how to worship the way her mom worshipped. The cute factor was off the scale. Sometimes we teach them formally, formally what worship is. And we, and, and, but usually we teach them by watching us. How do we act? How do we react to them? How do we include them? Do we exclude them? You know, the church at Troas in the Bible, didn't seem to mind when one of their youth group fell asleep on the windowsill listening to a long, boring sermon. And then he rolled out the window and landed on the ground below in a heap, and they thought he was dead. But they praised and worshipped God when they, he was raised up alive and taken home and cared for and comforted by this miraculous act of worship. In, in Corinthians chapters 10 through 14, Paul teaches us about orderly worship, about the freedom of the believers and about charismatic gifts and how and when they should be used in worship. And there's a need to be a fine balance between what is orderly and, and, and what is restrictive and stifling, boring and artificial. And, and, and some place in between, wherever that is, from time to time. Charismatic freedoms that allow for prophecies and words from God, praise and expressions of praise in music, and singing and dancing and ecstasy. But in this section, Paul also writes that tongues are okay within reason. Static trances and charismatic experiences are okay within reason. And teaching and reading of scripture and prophecy and building up the body of Christ are all okay within reason. 
But Paul says the greatest method, the greatest of all these different parts of worshiping is the community of love. And he inserts right in the middle of this big long chapter section on worship, right in the middle he plunks down what we know as chapter 13, the love passage. And we never think of that, we hear it at weddings, but we never think of that passage as being instructions for us to worship. Love is the most important component of our worship. How we act with, interact with one another. How we perceive one another. How we care for one another. Those are all acts of worship. Our love for one another must drive us together. And to worship together, to love and care for, other, for each other is all part of our worship. Our love for God should drive us to worship Him. We want to be with Him. We want to praise and glorify Him. Our overarching urge to praise and worship God should be an urge more powerful than all of the other recreation and distractions that claim our time and compete for our attention. I remember growing up in my home church, there was a man there. He was in his 60s when I first met him. He was a bachelor an old curmudgeon kind of guy. But his claim to fame was that he had once attended worship each and every week for five consecutive years. And for him, that was a source of great personal pride and motivation. He had done it, whether he was sick or tired or visiting or had company with him. He was in church. Because it was important to him. It was the priority. Sociologists tell us that the present generation, me and are my kids and grandkids, we're less concerned about membership than we are with attendance. It doesn't seem to matter that one belongs to a church or a club or organization, but the important thing is, do we go there? Do we participate? Some churches have even dropped membership. I don't know how they conduct their business, but they do. But the concern with, for them is, are, they, are you here? Are you worshiping with us? And they hold one another accountable uh, in, 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 in people's attendance. And lastly, I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about how we worship in our hearts. The scripture says that they who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. We, we worship outside of the physical things of life. We will be in a physical setting, but that's not the important thing. The place where our spirit is is the important thing, the essential part of our worship. Where is our spirit? We can be in a church and our spirit might be camping or boating or golfing. And conversely, we might be at work, in the hospital, at home, but our spirit is here with God's people, worshiping in spirit and in truth. How can we be truthful in our worship so that the spirit is present with the spirit of God? Well, we start by being honest with ourselves. We need to stand before God and give him a reason why we won't be at worship. We need to check our relationship with God and see it's truly the most important thing in our lives, the most important relationship, pushing aside all of the other things, the lesser things. 
I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to tell you this story or not, but it's too late. I moved to a new community many years ago, and a lot of the people at the new workplace were golfers. So they played golf every Sunday morning, and they twisted my arm all through the week and said, come and play golf with us. So I borrowed some golf clubs, told my wife I was skipping church, and went to the golf course. Now, the golf course was on a floodplain down low, hills all around it. We were about as far from the clubhouse as it was possible to get when the heavens opened up and it started to pour down rain. And it's a floodplain, remember? It wasn't long until I was knee-deep in water, and everything I owned and had on my body was soaking wet. So I carried this bag of wet golf clubs back to the clubhouse, wading through the water, and I said, yes, God, I will be in church next Sunday. <laughs> we need that kind of honesty with ourselves. We must worship in spirit and in truth, and how hard it would be for us to be truthful about our feelings someday. We're tired, we're bored of our worship. It's predictable and unexciting. And people tell us that they don't get anything out of worship. And my answer is always, well, how much do you put into it? We need to remember that I am not a performer. And you, the audience. You are the performers. I simply help you lead along with the musicians and and the lectors, the readers. And God is the audience. Do you realize that? God is the audience of your worship. How can we experience the living God? How can we come close to the throne of the creator and the sustainer of life? And how can we come before the king of kings without praise and worship? The answer is we can't. If we are to experience God, we will have to experience worship. We will have to experience praise. And we will have to experience the greatness of God. Where we do that sometimes. Sometimes we do that by watching the sunset. There is the greatness and the magnificence of God. Sometimes we, we stand at the rim of a grand canyon and, and we see this panoramic vista, and we say, there is the power and the might of God. And they become worship moments. They become worship moments. Or when you pick up that little newborn baby, and they clutch your finger with that little tiny grip, and you say, there is the gentleness of God. Those are worship moments, because they are coming out of the spirit that wants eagerly to worship God. We seek him out. We make vows and commitments before God to attend in worship. And we worship him when we travel, when we are anywhere. In a few minutes, we're going to worship at the table. This table is not ours. It's not Wyoming Baptist Church, it's not Baptist, it's not anything to do with us as a church. It's the table of Jesus. 
And he has already invited anyone, all who want to come, to worship at the table. We will distribute little cups of grape juice. At one time it would have been wine, but that was before the temperance movements in the 1860s. There is regular bread, and for those of you who are celiac, there's gluten-free. But those elements aren't the important thing. What is important is that we are being obedient to what God has asked us to do, to remember his death by celebrating this memorial meal. Let's uh, worship as we sing and then as we gather at the table.